Hello and welcome to another episode of the EDS at Union Now podcast. In today's episode, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas will continue the Being Church in the Time of COVID-19 series, where she brings attention to the underlying issues of injustice, poverty, and racism that this crisis has exposed. Today she is speaking with Katie Mears. Katie is an MDiv student at Union and she works with the Episcopal Relief and Development as a Senior Director for the U.S. Disaster Program. Katie has great insight into how the Episcopal Church is responding to this pandemic. A video version of this podcast is also available on the EDS at Union Facebook page and the Union Theological Seminary YouTube channel. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to EDS at Union Now wherever you listen to podcasts and help us spread the word by sharing the show with your friends and family. And with that, here is our conversation with Dean Kelly Brown Douglas. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us in our Facebook Live conversation on being church in the time of COVID-19. Today, I am more than privileged to have joining me in this conversation, Reverend Katie Mears. She is the Senior Director for U.S. Disaster Programs for the Episcopal Relief and Development, as well as recently ordained deacon in the Episcopal Church and is in her final year at Union Theological Seminary. Thank you, Katie, for being a part of this conversation. So glad to be with you. Well, there's much to cover. So let's jump in. Before we address particular issues as they uh, relate to our current global pandemic, could you say a word about Episcopal Relief and Development for those who don't know what that's all about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So Episcopal Relief and Development is an organization that works with communities around the world, so both in the US and internationally, Uh, to help communities build sustainable and fulfilling lives for the folks in them. And to me, the most important two pieces to know about the organization is that we work through the Anglican Communion. Um, So we work through the network of the church, both in the U.S. and internationally, and that we use a church. So it's not about going to a place and saying um, that we as outsiders know what's wrong with that community, or even that community telling us all the things that's wrong with that community but instead communities figuring out what their gifts are and how they can use those gifts to to build the lives that they dream of. And so what I like about this model then is that you're really going in and empowering people and helping people to see the resources they may have, even as you supplement those resources and add to those resources. Absolutely. uh, To to create sustainability uh, for communities. Thank you for for the work that you're doing and for for sharing that. Now, let's get to this crisis. Absolutely. As you think about this current global crisis uh, and as Senior Director of Disaster Programs for Episcopal Relief and Development, as well as a, a deacon of the church, what would you say it means at this time to be church? It's... It's such a big question, but it's also such a great question. And I think um, it's tempting to think that we're always um, doing new things that have never happened before. And I'm drawn back to some of the images from our tradition. And I've been thinking a lot about the image of the body of Christ from Paul's letter from the first Corinthians or to the first Corinthians that um, talks about how we're interconnected and that we're a body and that 
um, how the least members are treated and how the vulnerable members are treated is absolutely imperative to how the body functions. And I think that as church, sometimes it's easy to think of ourselves as islands on all kinds of levels. So I think American Christians are especially want to do that, especially privileged American Christians can think of our faith as personal and we can think of our church as an island and we can think of our diocese as an island or we can think of our denomination as an island. And in fact, what this is revealing is how interconnected we are at all levels and the ways that that interconnectedness is both beautiful but also fragile, um, especially depending on how we treat those vulnerable members of the body. My goodness, so well said and so much uh, to dig into a little bit there. Couple of things that uh, you said, first of all, Yes, you know, that we are all interconnected. We're interconnected as a church body, but we're interconnected as a, a humanity. And so one of the things that we've discovered, right, in this uh, global pandemic, if we have not known it before, and that is that borders are artificial human constructs, right? Mm -hmm. And so that we are one global human uh, uh, community and one thing that impacts someone somewhere impacts all of us. The other point that you make that I want you to speak uh, to a little bit has to do with the way we treat the most vulnerable. And if anything, this current COVID health crisis has revealed an ongoing sort of social crisis and uh, that has often been ignored. And that is the crisis of endemic injustice and growing gross inequality. And so can you speak a little bit to that and what you have seen even as director of disaster programming uh, with, with uh, Episcopal Relief and Development and how in fact this crisis is more revealing of uh, this ongoing social crisis that we've ignored and what that means uh, for the most vulnerable in our community. Yeah, I think at least speaking for myself, Personally, I feel like um, for me, there's a way that I, you know, I've always liked that passage from First Corinthians. And I've always known that the world is interconnected and I've sort of thought about creation and the global family. But it's really different when you like realize how many different people who are paid minimum wage have to touch your eggs, you know, or your gallon of milk or your sort of the gasoline to, to fill up your car. Like that we rely on people that are not treated well for our lives to work. And I think that that had probably been something that I was academically aware of, um, but I hadn't necessarily uh, had the, the face and the, the, the awareness of it in the way that I have right now. And so, I, and I think that's happening um, broadly across society, that this realization that we need the cleaners in the nursing homes and we need the grocery store clerks and like all of these roles are absolutely imperative but the people that fill them are treated so poorly, you know, and are uninsured and are showing up to work anyway because they have to figure out how to, you know, pay their rent and sort of make their lives work um, to the extent that they do. And, but we, or I as a person with privilege, like need, need those folks doing those roles in order for my life to work, but I'm not, have not been willing to pay to actually have that happen. And so the whole system is based on this just gross inequality that causes economic fragility for so many people. Um, and I guess that's the terrifying awareness <laughs> of how interconnected we are, but I also hope that could be the gift uh, that comes 
not obviously not a gift that's worth it, but that that could be something that that we're transformed by through this crisis. That's right, to be transformed. And what you say again is so profound because there are certain peoples that are essential to our lives that we don't treat as essential. And in fact, we treat them as expendable. Uh, and are hopefully through this crisis, they don't become disposable. And so I want to stay with this a little more. What, what have you seen or, or do you think that we need to pay attention to that we have not paid attention to? What is the suffering that before we have not seen that perhaps this pandemic is revealing uh, to us? I mean, I think some of it is just the suffering of low-wage workers. I think yep. I've been in a lot of conversations over the last couple of weeks about people who, again, maybe supported minimum wage ordinances or sort of like had a cerebral understanding of the importance, but the actual, like, the actual lived experience of um, that some people can work from home and some people fundamentally can't, and therefore some people are literally carrying the risk of disease in their body and other people aren't and that that has a lot to do with what job you have um and i think that that that's a piece of suffering that uh, is exposed the other piece that i've been thinking a lot about um is is the piece about borders that you were just talking about and the ways that communities are divided by borders and this sort of isolation that a lot of people are experiencing now and is so real but is also an experience that lots of people have had because they've been divided by borders in the past. Um, and so for some people, this idea of um, grieving without being able to connect with family um, is a horrible thing that is happening right now. And for other communities, that's been happening for a long time. Um, and that um, I, I hope again, that there's ways that these realizations of how hard these things are could transform the ways that we think about people that already had to deal with those issues before this crisis. No, that's right, that's right. And even as you talk about that, I'm thinking of the emotional toll and the emotional cycle and the traumatic toll that uh, COVID-19 uh, can take and has taken. As many people have said that it's not only a medical crisis, but it is also a mental health crisis. Uh, can you, you have spoken about that so well in other places. Can you share a little bit about that with us today? Yeah, I think that but before I talk specifically about the emotional life cycle, I just want to talk a little bit about, I think one of the reasons why this is especially hard for folks is that I think that for a lot of people, um, there's a little bit of a binary in, your, in people's minds between being a helper and being a helped person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that it is much more comfortable to be on the helper side mm -hmm. than to be on the helped side and to be on the bestower of assistance mm -hmm. than the vulnerable recipient. And I think that for a lot of folks, in, especially in our church, this is one of the first times that they've been on the other side of that equation. Um, and that that's incredibly uncomfortable and distressing and hard um, to, if you've been a person who has defined yourself as a helper. Um, and so I think one of the things that we're called to sit with and explore is what would it mean if we could be both <laughs> um, a, re a recipient of help and a helper and that our helperness 
was not based on our lack of needing help. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's one thing I think is sort of like an added layer of complexity. I think with a natural disaster where it's very clear what happened, <laughs> like the tornado came through and your house was damaged, your worthiness of help is kind of clear <laughs> where um, being sheltering in place and having your Netflix and, you know, getting your groceries delivered, like why you need, why that's hard, I think is harder for people to, to think about and to understand. Yeah. And what I'm struck by, and I want you to continue what you've just said. And I think you're very right in sort of trying to break down that binary because unless we can begin to put ourselves in the places of vulnerability and, and, actually be people who can ask for help, then we don't have patience for those who are vulnerable and those who have to ask for help. And so it seems to me that compassion uh, builds from out of that place of vulnerability or out of that place of being able to allow yourself to ask for help. Right, I guess as you were saying that, I was thinking about just loving our neighbors as ourselves. There mm -hmm. is that self part. <laughs> and that I think sometimes for folks, if they're not willing to ask for help for themselves, there is a, or if there's a self-judgment about asking right. for help, it's hard not to judge other people for asking for help, even if you don't mean it. Um, right. You're sort of setting up a, a distance automatically. That's right. Um, on, the, on the life cycle of a disaster and the sort of emotional toll, the, so normally when there's a, you know, again, I don't mean to romanticize natural disasters, but sort of a clear cut, weather event. Mm -hmm. We talk about there being the sort of impact of an event and that's sort of hard. So you have an emotional dip. And then the thing that's surprising is you people's sort of emotions go up a little bit. And that we talk about that as the honeymoon right after an event. And it's surprising for folks who haven't been through disasters, but that often people talk about disasters as some of the best times in their lives mm -hmm. in terms of feeling uh, connected to community, feeling like they get along with neighbors, they're reaching across boundaries, they're connected to their families, um, and that you have this sort of high honeymoon period. And then things gradually get harder and harder, and, and then eventually you turn the corner and start to get to a new normal. What's hard about this event is community cohesion is challenging mm -hmm. in an era of social distance and physical distance. And so I think it's still happening a little bit. I think people a couple of weeks ago, um, at least some people were sort of hyped up a little bit and planning big things. And, um, and so there was a little bit, but I think it's certainly less than normal. And the impact phase, because it's lasting an indeterminate amount of time right. with an unclear quantity of damage, um, that low is just very, very long. And I don't think we know how low it's going to get yet. And I think that um, as a church and as a nation and as a world, one of the things we have to think about is how we can care for ourselves in the marathon that is this hard part uh, that's mm -hmm. going to keep going um, at least, at least for several more weeks and depending on the economic fallout, likely much longer than that. And so how do we stay people with a little flicker of hope, <laughs> um, knowing how long this is going to go. No, you're right. You know, the hard thing about this is that it's something you can't see. 
we had spoken a little bit before uh, this conversation about how you look outside and everything looks, wow, things are blooming and spring is uh, in the air, uh, yet, yet it's really not safe out there. And so not only is it something that you readily can't see coming, so to speak, but you also can't see the end uh, and know what that's like. And so it leads me to ask you, this is Episcopal relief and development. What's relief look like? Yeah, I, I think the beauty of the way that we work is that this relief looks just like all the other relief in uh, form, if not in content. So what we always say is the way that the church can respond to crises is to use its gifts to meet the needs of its vulnerable neighbors. And that that's true during this, just as much as it's true in the aftermath of a hurricane or in the aftermath of a suicide, that um, we're called to think of the ways that we, not only as institutions, or not only as individuals, but also as institutions, have gifts. And how could those gifts be leveraged to meet the needs? And again, that sounds very grand. <laughs> um, and it doesn't have to be. It could be as simple as, you know, the gift is we have a couple of extremely social retired folks that love chatting and we have a couple of other folks that are lonely and so we're going to use the gift of our chatty people to meet the needs of the loneliness of some of our other members like that's sort of the simplest but it also could be you know there's accessing any of these uh, new federal programs is going to be complicated um, and oftentimes as a church we have some gifts around um, understanding how rules work <laughs> and how to apply for things um, often we have folks that are bilingual um, and so there may be ways that, that congregations could use those kinds of gifts to help people who wouldn't otherwise be able to, uh, to access some of the benefits in the new bill. That's just, again, that's just a random idea. And the, the beauty of that model is that each individual congregation is going to have a really different answer because their gifts are so different. So, so as, as an organization and uh, even as in your position as director, what, what are the things that you all are finding yourselves doing now as we're in the midst of this, not only uh, locally, nationally, but also globally? This is a global, and we often forget that uh, as we're all in our own little sort of cocoons, however far those cocoons uh, spread out of trying to deal with it, but we forget this is, involves the world. It is a global pandemic. Our Anglican communion is a global communion. And the work that Episcopal Relief and Development do is global. So how are you all addressing this global crisis right now? And I'll just add one little part to that addendum. And what is it that you would even want us to see as we are this interconnected global community in trying to navigate this crisis? Yeah, so on the, so the international side is not my domain, but I checked in with some of my colleagues and what they said was, so first thing is that going back to that body of Christ image and the, and the artificiality of borders and the ways that the viruses don't understand borders. Um, and so, Again, what happens to our most vulnerable members impacts us. And that is absolutely true around the world. And so the role of the church, again, looks very different, but has the same goals in a pandemic, whether you're talking about 
you know, the, the church in Burundi or, you know, the church in New York. Um, and so those goals are around how do we maintain uh, prayer life and worship while, while distant? How do we maintain community and connection? And how do we still serve the, the marginalized and vulnerable that we're called to serve? Um, and as Episcopal Relief and Development, we're not called to the, the first of those goals, um, but our role is to help equip the, the church in community um, especially around how do we equip them to serve. And so what does that mean we, we're doing? Um, for one thing, what we've realized is that a lot of our normal methodology involves leveraging relationships and often involves leveraging relationships between people less than six feet apart. Um, mm -hmm. And so we've been, they've been working really hard and we in the US too have been working hard at thinking about how we can shift what we do um, so that we don't stop addressing those really important issues of gender-based violence and childhood mortality and sort of climate resilience. Those all still are important, um, but how can we think about that work in this current moment? And how is that work gonna be transformed by what's to come? And then uh, we also participate, um, I've been involved in some of this and they're much more involved in uh, global sharings within the communion. So how can it not just be um, everybody as an island, but how do we be a body? Um, you know, we can be a body <laughs> on lots of Zoom calls, um, but also sharing resources. The, the example I'm most struck by is that part of what's so scary for a lot of us in the US is that we've never been in a pandemic. Yep. Um, this is new. Um, it's scary, I've never been, I've never been in this. Um, in other parts of the world, there've been pandemics and they've been recent. And so there've been some really wonderful conversations with church leaders, especially in West Africa, who did some really wonderful work with faith communities during Ebola and how to um, equip the church to be church in that kind of moment. And how can we draw on those resources and then contextualize them to our context. So on our website, we have some really wonderful Bible studies that were developed um, in the church in the Congo um, that we've then uh, sort of taken some of the Congolese specific pieces um, out and then have in English and Spanish on our site as a really great example of how those relationships hopefully are mutually beneficial. No, I, I you appreciate how you've just spoken to the fact that, you know, there are things we can learn from other countries and other peoples uh, who have been through this. And it's almost this same uh, sort of metaphor of helper and uh, helpy uh, being helped, right? Uh, because, you know, we sit in this sort of, U.S. context and think that we have to be the leader of the world and all of these things and we can't learn from others. And what I appreciate is how you've emphasized the fact that other, this is, other nations have been through epidemics and pandemics uh, before. What's new to us isn't new to them. And so that we need to learn to listen and to learn from others. Uh, and make ourselves vulnerable and make ourselves open to learning, which leads me, I'll ask you a couple, two and one more international caveat though. Yes. I realize I don't want it to though sound too rosy because of course everything is built on what, how this virus will impact the system has a lot to do with what the underlying situation is. And so given the just vast inequalities in the world, the impact that it has in other places 
is going to be determined by you know the, if if someone is malnutrition has malnutrition going in and there isn't much of a hospital network like even if they have experience <laughs> um it's it's going to be incredibly difficult and so um again i just keep thinking about that image of sort of an ignored vulnerable part of the body um, that we you know haven't been protecting in the way that i think we've been called in the past um, and, and no, that's, right. that's now rippling out into how it's going to play out now uh, not only internationally but within our own uh u.s contacts you know these vulnerable communities as both you and i uh, spoke about earlier uh and how they're going to be greatly impacted and how that in effect then impacts the whole body as we're seeing so it leads me to to this penultimate question uh, for you, Katie, because I want to honor your time and the work that you were doing uh, on the ground there. And that is this, what are the lessons that you've learned from this and that indeed uh, the church should learn? I, I, this was one of my favorite questions to think about because I think, again, I've worked in the Episcopal Church for most of my adult life. And I think that sometimes it's really easy to tell a story about how uh, stuck in the mud we are. Um, and the thing that I've seen over the past couple of weeks is an incredible capacity for change that I'm not sure we gave ourselves credit for um, and that I'm not sure I would have thought we could do. And again, we didn't do it for fun and we didn't do it um, without hiccup, certainly. But I think the, the lesson that we aren't exactly who we said we were um, and that we have more capacity uh, for dramatic change than we knew um, and knowing what again we don't know exactly what the future looks like but i suspect that is a gift that we will need to continue to draw on and i hope that we don't forget that yeah. we had this ability to innovate and be flexible um, and uh, be interconnected um, as the time goes on because I, I do know that that no matter what happens in the next couple of months we'll certainly be called to continue to change no, good. So what then is the final sort of message uh, that you would want to leave with for the church and for the people who are listening? Yeah, I hope, I think this is, a, this is an appropriate message going into Holy Week. I've been thinking a lot about how one gift that our tradition has is the ability to hold being profoundly gifted and profoundly broken at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and that this can both be just terrible and painful and um, the worst. And there is hope at the, sa at, at the same time. And that we are people that bring gifts in suffering. Um, and so I think that's the the piece that I would invite people to reflect on, maybe the Holy Week reflection, but sort of what are the the practices that allow you to keep both sides of that at the sort of acknowledging the real pain, but also able to check in and visit, if not stay with that little flicker candle of hope um, that acknowledges the ways that we also are, are gifted um, at the same time. Reverend Katie Mears, thank you so much for this conversation. Through it, you have reminded us of not only 
the fact that in so many respects, justice begins when those most vulnerable in our midst experience it. And you have reminded us that instead of simply looking at how bad it can be, that we can also look through this at how great we can become. And thank you for the work that you are doing. And I am sure that many people will get a lot from this conversation. And so thank you so much. Continue your work. And thank you for all of the insights. Yeah, thank you so much.